The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. All right, good morning, Tower View. Trying to get myself situated here. Um, had a false start with the Facebook Live a second ago. I started it and it immediately quit. I don't know what the deal was. Um, so, uh, kind of a cloudy, dreary day at the moment, but the rain is supposed to go away. The sun is supposed to come out, so hope to see you all at 10.30 when we do our uh, Facebook, our Facebook? No, when we do our drive-in church. So I welcome you all this morning as we begin our Sunday school lesson. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, we just thank you and praise you for all that you do. You're a mighty God. Help us as we study your word for a few minutes this morning that we can be your servant, Lord, that you will enlighten us with knowledge, that you will, your Holy Spirit will touch our hearts and our minds and our attitudes, Lord, to change our lives, that we can worship and glorify you. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't know, I'm Pastor Nelson, Tower View Baptist Church. I'm associate pastor there. If you want to find out more about us, um, contact our website, towerviewkc.com, obviously our Facebook page. So um, with that, let's get going. So we've been going through the book of Romans. And last week we were in Romans chapter 10. And um, as we went through Romans chapter 10, we see what is required for salvation. And that salvation is required for all, for Jews and for Gentiles. And in going into chapter 11, he continues discussing, and, and we see that also in chapter 9, he continues talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. Who will be saved? What does God want? Where are we as Gentiles? Where are the Jews in God's priority list. And in Romans chapter 11, and to kind of get some flavor where we're at, as you see in the lesson, we're going to be starting in verse 17, but to get some flavor, in 11.1, Paul asked this question. I asked then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. So Paul is discussing and says, no, God has not rejected the Israelites because I'm an Israelite. And so God has not rejected him. But even and he gives the example of Elijah. He says, even when Elijah, after he did the miracle with, 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 on Mount Carmel, and God sent lightning, fire from the sky on his offering, and nothing came down for the offering of those who followed Baal. 
But yet Elijah ran away and said, I am the only one left to follow you, God. And God said, no, there are 7,000 others who have not bent a knee to follow Baal. They have continued to follow me. Elijah didn't know who they were. And so, no, God has not rejected Israel. And then in verse 11, 11, 11, it says, I asked them, have they stumbled, they, that being Israel, so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgressions bring riches for the world and their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? So Paul is going on to say, hey, yes, Israel as a whole has not followed God. They've rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because of that, this message has come to the Gentiles, to you, to me. I'm a Gentile. But because of that, but how much more would the blessing be if Israel did follow God? If Israel followed Jesus and we followed Jesus, how much more would that benefit the world? How much more would that glorify God? And then he goes and he gives a couple illustrations. And in verses 13 to 16, he gives the um, illustration of, of first fruits. Whenever the crop came in, the first amount that you harvested was to be given to God. That's a first fruit. So before you eat any of it, before you can any of it, any of it, you give it to God. That's a first fruit. Um, most of us aren't farmers. Most of us don't grow crops or have animals or anything. But your first fruit, the first money that you make, the first thing that you spend your money on when you get your paycheck, what is it? Is it on the things of God? Is the first money before you pay any bills? Do you write out a check? Do you get online and give money to God? That's the first fruit. And so he, he says, Israel's the first fruits. Gentiles, we're, we're, we're the second fruit. But then he gives a, he clarifies, and he also gives an illustration about the root. He says, if the root is holy, in verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So when you think about a tree or a, a grapevine, whatever the root is, that's going to reflect on what, what's coming off the branches, the fruit that comes off the, the vine for, for uh, grapes. And so if, if the root is well established, if it's established in good water, in good soil, then it's going to produce good fruit. And that's the whole analogy he's going to be making here. So starting in verse 17. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, was grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast of that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. So he now starts making an analogy, um, and he's going to go on and, and explain this even more, of grafting uh, branches into a grapevine. And so most of us aren't horticulturists. Most of us aren't don't work in a vineyard. So I was like, what in the world is going on? So I, you know, I had to read up on it a little bit. But he, the way he's describing it is actually backwards to the way that 
the actual vine vineyard growers do it. What the vineyard growers do is they take a cultivated vine that is the fruit that they want, but the cultivated vines don't grow as well. They're not as hardy. I mean, think about our grass and the things that you want. We always have to get rid of the weeds because the weeds are, 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 are natural to this area. And so they grow easily. And the plants that we want to grow usually aren't natural to this area. And so you have to work harder to, to make sure they have the good soil. They have the right amount of water, that the soil's, um, you know, got the right nutrients in it, that you make sure you keep the weeds away and, and such. And so what they would do is they'd actually take a wild grapevine that was more natural, but it usually didn't have as good a fruit. So they would cut off the branches of a wild vine and graft in the branches from a cultivated vine. And grafting is just the way you slice them, two branches, and then you put them together and you wrap them up. And the, the branches, the tree or the vine will heal itself. And, and, and this new vine, that new branch that you put in there will become part of the, of, of the, of the roots, part of the, the vine system of, of the wild um, grape, grape vine plant. But in this case, Paul is making an analogy, and so he's making it backwards. So he's saying the cultivated vine is the holy vine. It's the vine of Israel. It's the vine of promise that God has provided. And that's the Jewish, you know, from the Jewish heritage. That's where we, the Old Testament was written for the Jews. And he's saying, if you're in the new vine, if you're, you're the wild branches that we're bringing in, that's the Gentiles, those who did not have a history of following God. And bringing them in and making them holy by attaching them to the cultivated, to the godly vine, to the godly root system. And that's the analogy that he's making. So his analogy is bad vineyard work if you want good grapes. But that's not his point. He's not giving you a horticultural lesson. His point is that, that he's using the vine system and this grafting thing as a picture, as a word picture of what is really happening. And so because of the unbelief of the Jews, of the Israelites, their branches get cut off. And now there's a place for the wild vines, for the Gentiles to come in and worship and, and become saved and be made holy by God. But thankfully, one, this is an analogy. All analogies break down if you take them to the extreme. God is not limited. You have a vine out there. There's only so many branches you can cut off and only so many branches that you can, you can, you can graft in. But thankfully, because of God, there is no limit. This is a holy vine. There is no limit on the number of branches. So even if every Israelite believes, there, those of us who are Gentiles, we could still access God. God does not need one person to not believe before another one can believe. God doesn't need that. He's not limited by anything. So, But this is just a word picture, an analogy. So we see that here. Um, And so one of the things he wanted to make sure he, he meant to the Gentiles is that we should not boast. It's like, well, God's picked me. I'm so much better than those, those, those Israelites. 
And, and so I'm much more holy than them because God has chosen me. No, no. As Paul mentioned multiple times already in the book of Romans, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All need to come to faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There is no distinction. So the Jew needs to believe just as much as the Gentile needs to believe. There is no two sets of requirements. It's only one set of requirements. It is to have faith in God, have faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 19, then you will say, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough. They were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So just to clarify, so you don't get into boasting. God is not God judges your heart, not your heritage. It doesn't matter if nobody in your family has ever believed. It doesn't matter if you have godly preachers in your family going back five generations. You must believe in Christ yourself. As somebody once said, you know, God has no grandchildren. Each of us must become a child of God. Each of us must follow him. So just because, in this case, he's comparing the Gentiles to the Jews, just because many of the Jews did not believe, that doesn't make you better than them. And out through world history, the anti-Semitism that's going around, that's just ungodly. Anti, being being anti-Jewish, being against the Jews, just because they're Jews, is ungodly. Because they are still God's chosen people. And that they can come to Christ just as easily as, as, as us Gentiles can. And so don't become arrogant, but be aware. If God has cut off, in this analogy, if you don't, Israel got their branches cut off because they didn't believe. Well, if you're going to cut off the natural branches because they don't believe, you can cut off the unnatural branches that are grafted in if they don't grow. If they die off, you can cut them off too because of their unbelief. So you're not, you don't become a Christian just because you're a Gentile, just because you're replacing a Jew. That's not the case. You must believe too. And if you don't believe, you're not worthy to be a branch. Now, is he saying that, well, you can lose your salvation? No, I don't think so. But from our human standpoint, we may see somebody that lives in the church, that works in the church, that does things in the church, but we can't see their heart. And so from, you know, God knows, hey, that person's not saved. I can't, I don't know that. Then something happens in their life and they have to truly trust God and they can't do it. And they show that their faith is not true. But from our point of view, it looks like, hey, it looks like they were a good, say, you know, faithful Christian, and now they're not. Their branches have been cut off. But the truth is that they were never grafted in to begin with. They just looked like they were. And so in verse 22, Therefore consider God's kindness and severity, Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. 
I wrote on the board behind me, God's severity, God's kindness. Well, well, make up your mind. Is God kind or is he severe? Yes. We can't put God in a box. When you put God in a box and say he only has this attribute, you're limiting God. You're rewriting God in your own image. And he's no longer God. So you have people who talk about the kindness and the love of God. Oh, God is love. And they never criticize. They don't talk about sin. They talk about, you know, follow God and you'll be, you know, God will bless you with riches. Um, God just wants to love everyone. And, and to some element, I mean, and, and th- those are all true statements. But God is also severe because he is a holy God. He is a just God. And so he must judge based on our heart, based on our faith. And, and in that judgment, it's it seems severe. The idea of hell is severe. The idea of God's eternal judgment is severe. But some people grow up in a, in a culture where, you know, God's severe. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. And they've got the list of the don'ts. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't go out with girls that do. Um, that kind of attitude. And the, all they see is the severity of God. And they don't see the kindness of God. And so God is both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You can't put God in a box. Unfortunately, many of us, our first inclination when we think of who God is and his attributes, we really patter him off our earthly father. Sometimes that's good and often that's bad. You have a a loving, kind, generous father, earthly father, dad, and then... You know, you you have you can have an easier time doing that. But if you had a, a, a harsh dad, a severe dad, we, we oftentimes think that's what God is like. If you had a far away dad, you never saw him. You know, he, he left the family for whatever reason, or maybe he died when you were young. You think God's a far away God and he doesn't see you. That's our default reaction. But God is not that way. You can't put God in a box. He has to be severe because he is a holy God. He is a just God. I mean, look at the severity he did. He sent his own son to to die on a cross, to leave heaven, to live on this miserable world for 30-some years, and to die a miserable death. That's severe. To live with us. The disciples weren't special holy people. They were just people like you and me. You know, they were, you know, some of them were workingmen. They were fishermen. They were tradesmen. They probably didn't have very good language. They probably said a lot of cuss words. You had people like Matthew, who, who was a tax collector. He was probably more educated. You know, he, you know. He had a, a a white collar job, you know. He had an office job. He made good money, and, and we don't know about all the other guys that we don't get the the biography of all the other disciples. But the, it seems like there are a range of people, a range of ages. Some of them seem to be very young. John probably was very young, probably a teenager. Others may have been older. We don't know the ages of all the disciples. 
And so God was severe in sending his son down to this world to live under the Roman Empire in the backwater nation of Israel where there wasn't a lot. Jesus didn't come from a wealthy family. And so by being severe, he shows his kindness. He is severe, but because of he sent Jesus as a kindness to us so that we have a, a path to salvation. And that is a kindness. That is a gift that he has given us. As it says earlier in Romans, the wages of sin is death. That's the severity. We get what we deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's the kindness of God. And so it's not an either or. It's a both and. Is God big enough that he can be severe and holy and just and, and bring judgment, but yet be kind enough to show you grace and mercy and faith to, to give you salvation? And that's a challenge of us in, in you know leading a church. We have to point out what sin is in people's lives, but yet be kind and, and, and show kindness because God will show his mercy and people will be saved that come from very rough backgrounds or show them mercy after that rough time of sin and they've repented and come back to Christ and we have to reconcile with them and, and, and seek forgiveness. And so it's a hard thing to do. And so don't put God in a box. He is severe and he is kind. And if you can't understand that, you too will be cut off. Kindness and severity. And so um, we need to remain in, his, in this kindness. And, and if we look back, Paul mentions this earlier in chapter 2, in Romans 2, 4. In 2.4 it says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So God's kindness, but it's also severity, is supposed to lead you to repentance. When he is hard. I mean, think about why do we discipline our kids when they're young? It says that's severe to discipline your kid. Whether you spank them or put them in timeout or ground them from a certain device or events or things, that's severe. But you do that out of kindness to mold them, to shape them into the men and women that they will become. Think about yourself and others that you've talked about. The, the severity of their parents as a kid you hated, but as an adult you appreciate. And it's the same with God. God sometimes has to be severe, but that's to show us the need to repentance so you can see God's kindness. Continue on in verse 23. And then, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted... Okay. And with, and let me read that again. And even, and even they if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. So they, the Jews, so that's why you can't read a verse by itself. you got to go back and read the previous verses. Where What's the antecedent English word from remembering English class? The antecedent, that they, who is that they pointing to? It's pointing to the Jews. 
if even if the Jews, if they do not remain in unbelief, now you use a double negative. That's why I stumbled over it. If they do not remain in unbelief, that means if they believe. Double negatives in English is bad and Greek is okay. It's a good thing in Greek. If they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. So even though their branch was cut off, if they come back and believe later, they'll be grafted back in. So it's not a permanent banning. It's not if a Jew comes to Christ, they, Jesus will welcome them in. And we as the church should welcome them in. We should never keep anybody out because of their family history, whether it's because they were a Jew or because their father was a Democrat or their father was a Republican or you know their father worked here or there or had this job or did that. That shouldn't matter. They come to Christ as a, and they're now a follow a follower of Christ. They're your brother. They're your sister in Christ. And you should welcome them in. So God, even though in this analogy, Paul is talking about, well, they, their branch was cut off. That's one, this is an analogy. But they, that branch can be grafted back in. And with God, there is no time period. Generally, if you cut off a branch, you have to graft it in immediately. If you let it sit out for a week, it's just going to dry up and die, and you can't graft it back in. But God is not limited by that. So don't take this analogy to the natural extreme. God's not limited by what we see in nature. In verse 24, For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature was grafted into a cultivated tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So think of this olive tree as the tree of salvation. And when you become saved, you're grafted in. Think about how many word pictures in the Bible, in the New Testament, describe salvation and coming to Christ and our relationship to the Christ. Here, Paul is using the horticultural thing about grafting branches into a, a plant. Jesus talks about that we are the bride and he is the bridegroom. They're talking about that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The, all the different word pictures that God has adopted us. That we were a slave to sin and now we're a slave to God. All these different word pictures. Why? Because no one of them is accurate. Don't put God in a box. That's why we have all these different word pictures so you can see different elements of the way we come together as Christians. And so this is just another one. And he's just using a horticultural one. And if you don't completely understand it, that's okay. Just understand that it's a grafting is just a way to add a branch to a, to, to a vine to, to make it grow. If you don't know what that is, I'm sure there's a YouTube video for that. And so he's just using a word picture. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All can have faith and come, come by faith, believe in Jesus Christ and come to salvation. There is no distinction. And then in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so we get to this section, these verses, and theologians have been arguing about these verses for decades, for decades, for centuries, for millennia. But he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Paul likes to use this word mystery. He probably used it more than 20 times. And nobody, hardly anybody else uses it. It was used one time in the book of Mark. In, in, in Mark chapter 4, in verse 10, it says, in Mark 4, 10 and 11, when he was alone, when he, that's Jesus, was alone around him with the 12, the 12 disciples, they asked him about the parables. They were asking him, why do you teach in parables? And he answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables. And here in in the uh, CSB that I'm reading, here they said the secret of the kingdom of heaven. The, The Greek word behind there is the same word that's translated mystery here in Romans. And Paul talks about mystery many times in his letters. What's a mystery? Well, it's a whodunit, right? You think of Agatha Christie or... Uh, novels, you know, uh, or, you know, there, there's many throughout TV, there have been all kinds of crime shows and, uh, and many of them go about it in a mysterious way where you don't know who, who the murderer is until the end. You have to go along with the, the, the characters and try to solve the mystery. Um, mystery, a uh, mystery, um, in scripture is, is is usually Paul is talking about something that's been revealed, something that was previously hidden that's now been revealed. And you think as you go through scripture, there was something hidden and now there's something revealed. Even you go all the way back to the first five books, the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. Those things, some of those things were hidden from the people. And Moses wrote about them and they were revealed. That's a mystery. But also part of a mystery is it's not always fully understandable. We want to wrap our minds around everything and understand it perfectly and understand every aspect and every nook and cranny of it. And that's not always possible. So what is this mystery that he's talking about? He goes, I don't want you to be ignorant. Let me tell you about this mystery. That means he's going to reveal something. He says that Israel has been partially hardened. And this goes back to the idea, if you read in Romans chapter 9, it says, you know, Isaac I loved, Esau I hated. That We read through the Old Testament at different times and places. It says God hardened the heart of a person, of Pharaoh when Israel, when Moses was trying to lead Israel out of Egypt, and, and different kings throughout different events. It says that God has hardened their heart. And so here it says God has partially hardened the the nation of Israel. Most of Israel did not believe, but there was quite a few that did. Obviously, all the disciples were Jewish. And so 11 of the original 12 followed Christ. Paul was, was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He believed. And many other Jews believed. We see Nicodemus, we we see Joseph of Arimathea, those were Jews that believed. And so we see many Jews that did believe. And and so it wasn't that no Jews ever believed. 
but it was the most of them did not believe. When Paul went around in his missionary journeys around at the Mediterranean Sea, the first place he went to was the synagogues, and some of the Jews there believed. And as you read this letter, even this one, why is he talking about Jews and Gentiles? Because there's Jewish believers and Gentile believers in Rome. And so he's talking to both of them. There's probably mostly Gentiles, but there are still some Jewish believers there too. And so there's a partial hardening. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. That means some of them didn't believe. Is it because they chose not to believe? Or is it because God hardened their hearts? Yes. From their point of view, they chose not to believe. From the human point of view. But then from God's sovereignty and God's knowledge, he hardened their hearts so that the gospel would be pushed out. Because one of the reasons, when, when the disciples first believed, they stayed in Jerusalem until persecution came and forced them to leave Jerusalem and spread out. And so it's a mystery. How do you explain it? You can't, I can't to, to my own satisfaction. That's why it's a mystery. And he gives us some prophecy he, that he reads from the Old Testament in verse 20. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jesus. He came from Zion and will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Once again, he kind of states it backwards. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Jacob is another word for Zion. It's another word for Israel. And he'll, turn, they'll, he'll kick out the godlessness out of Jacob. And so they will believe and turn to God and turn to Jesus. And this will, in verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them that I take away their sins. And isn't that what Jesus promised? Isn't that what Paul has been talking about all the way through the book of Romans, that he takes away our sins? He said that will happen sometime in the future. When? Don't know. Will it be 100%? And here's where they argue about it. Does that mean 100% of every individual Jewish person will become a Christian? Or just most of them will become a Christian? Is this an actual event? Is this just a theoretical event that Paul, uh, you know, just a spiritual event that Paul said? That's part of the mystery. We don't know the details. And so when he says a deliverer will come from Zion, he's quoting, he's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 59. And so he's, you know, why is, you know, he's quoting what it says, as it is written. When he says that is as written, he's quoting something from the Old Testament, from the scriptures. And remember, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile because we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 28, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. Okay, today, in verse 28, today, regarding the gospel, they are enemies because they, are no, they don't believe. They don't believe God. They are persecuting the church. But that's for your advantage. So you can come to know Christ. And that you can know him better because of the persecution. But then he says, but regarding election, God electing, choosing who's going to be saved. They are loved because of the patriarchs, because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
that God gave them promises, an eternal promise about their nation. It says because of that, they are elected, they are chosen, even though today they don't believe. So is he talking about individuals or is he talking about the nation? It seems here he's talking more about the nation as a whole. And he's so he's and as he's going through all this grafting thing, he's talking about the nation as a whole, not so much the individuals, not the people that live in his his exact time and place, but the nation as a whole throughout history. Because God's gracious gifts and his calling are irrevocable. And so, well, didn't Paul just say you could cut people off? Analogies break down. Word pictures break down. But God's, when he calls you, when you became a Christian, when you followed him, that calling on your life is irrevocable. God doesn't stop calling you. He doesn't stop being a part of your life, even when you sin. Paul said in, in, in 2 Timothy, he says, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so God's calling is irrevocable on your life, even when you fall. Well, what about Brother George over there? You see what he's been doing? I don't know what's going on in his heart and his mind. Yes, it appeared from our point of view that he was following God, and now he's not following God. So is he saved or not saved? I don't know. But we know that the Scripture says that they will endure to the that Christians will endure in the end, and that we will know them by their fruits. And so, basically, all we can do is wait. We can pray for that brother or that sister. We we can try to encourage them. We can try to correct them kindly that severity that's kind but in the end you know their fruits will show whether they're, they're saved or not will they come back to god or not and so in the end if they come back then we know that they were saved but if they never come back to god then the odds are that they were never saved but that's just from me looking at from my human point of very limited Point of view i'm wearing these glasses why because if i take them off i can't see anything i can't see the words on the board behind me through the camera i can't read anything on my computer screen i can't read the book that's in the things that are right in front of me because my vision is so bad and that's my my spiritual vision is bad i can't see into the hearts and minds of anybody else i sometimes have a hard time seeing into the heart and mind of myself but god's call gracious gifts Gifts are in his calling are irrevocable. Don't put God in a box. Don't limit what God can do in your life and the lives of others. God can provide a miracle. Verse 30. And at once, and you, talking about the, the people he's writing to, and you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. So they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. Say what? Yeah, this is, this is kind of confusing. You, you and I, we were disobedient. And then we came to Christ. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. And now you have received mercy. Through their disobedience, 
Well, in a manner of speaking, because they didn't believe, the disciples went out to the whole world and preached the gospel to all the Gentiles because of Israel's unbelief. So in a sense, it was because of their unbelief. But if they had believed, God's mercy is big enough. He can, he, he can handle both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he wants them to understand, but you can't boast in this because he said that earlier. So he's kind of making full circle. He's coming back to where he started from. They have disobeyed. You know, because of their disobedience, I got to come preach to the Gentiles. And because of that, you have received God's mercy. But you know what? They can receive God's mercy too. They can also receive God's mercy. Because why? There is no distinction. Verse 32, for God in prison has imprisoned all in disobedience. All who disobey are in prison. That's what hell is about. So that he may have mercy on all. So he is severe. He shows his judgment. He has pronounced his judgment. He shows us his judgment through Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Why? So that you will to repent and you can see the kindness of God that he can have mercy on you. So his severity has a purpose. His judgment has a purpose. So when bad things happen to you, you think God's hating you and God's punishing you. Understand that sin in this world and the consequences of sin are a reason to repent and turn to God. Even as a Christian, we need to keep repenting. We need to keep turning to God. It's a reminder that we are sinners and that we need God each and every day. And so this is why you don't take these verses out of context. People have taken verse 32 out of context and said, well, God loves everyone, and so everybody's going to be saved. No, that is not what this scripture teaches. And if you take this one verse and get a whole theology of that, you're putting God in a box. You're making God in your own likeness. And that is not scripture. you got to use all of scripture. So you got to read big chunks. you got to read books at a time of, of the Scripture, even as if you don't understand them. And so we've been reading through this. And it's like, God, this is, you know, Nelson, this is confusing. This is, you know, it's hard to understand. How can God be severe and kind? And why is he hating the Israels and cutting them off and all, all this? But how does Paul react to this? Okay, it's not in our lesson plan, but Paul's reaction to all this. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 33. So Paul is writing all this. He's been writing 9 and 10 and 11. And he's talking about Jews and God loving and hating and, and God electing some and not electing others and hardening their hearts and, and branches being cut off and branches being... How does Paul react to all this? With a hymn of praise. It causes him to worship God. And so in verse 33 to 36, the last verses of chapter 11... He says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So this whole mystery that God's talking about, we reread in chapters 9 through 11, Christians are still arguing about. What does he mean? 
Do we have free will to choose God or does God pick us all? And, and, and what about Jews? Are the Jews, Jewish nation of Israel going to be saved in the end or are they all going to be, you know, has God rejected Israel and it's just the Gentiles? And, and he, he's explained it to us and we still can't understand it. But what does Paul react? He reacts with a hymn of praise. He says, even though this is hard to understand, God, this is from God. And he rejoices, oh, the depths of his riches, because he realizes you can't put God in a box. You can't explain God. And because you can't put God in a box, you can't explain it, and you can't figure it all out. Praise God. Because God's wisdom and his knowledge is are unsearchable. It's like, well, we can just type it on, on, on in our browser and go in and do word search, and we can find the right answer. And, and in all these verses, you could do searches. You can find all kinds of answers out there on the Internet. I don't know if you'll find any right answers, but you'll find people who claim to have the right answer. But God's ways, you can't Google God. God doesn't give us everything. That's what living by faith is. Sometimes living by faith is we don't know all the answers and we love God anyways and we trust him anyways, even when we don't know all the answers. How unsearchable his judgment, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Here, here God, let me tell you how to do this. No, God doesn't need our help. He's got this. And all we have to do is live by faith. Each and every day, even when we don't understand, even when we don't have it all figured out, we still live by faith because we know that God has figured it out. Paul tried to explain it to us. And some of us think, well, we got we got a handle on this. And you know, we'll, I'll tell you exactly what that means. And then there are others like me. It's like, well, this seems what it means. And I, I tend to be more wishy-washy about it because I'm not going to put God in a box and say, yeah, I'm, I'm so smart. I know exactly what he means. There are those out there that will tell you exactly what it means. I, I can probably find some out there on the Internet. And some of them will say, this is what he means. And some will say, no, this is what he means. And the truth is, God has the tr God is the source of truth, not theologians. And so God, so Paul reads, writes all this to us, and he erupts in a hymn of praise because of it, even though it, because it's a mystery, even though we don't have it all figured out. It's because God has it figured out, and it's too hard for my puny brain to understand. Praise God. Praise God that he's got it figured out, and in the end, we will know. Even if we can't figure it all out here, God's got it figured out. And so, does reading Scripture lend you to praise? That's what Paul does. He's reading this. He's writing all this theological stuff, and we see it in chapter 8, and we see it in here in chapter 11. He's writing all this hard theological stuff, but it sends him off into an attitude of praise. And that's what it should do to us, too. As you read scripture, it should send you off into an attitude of praise. It should be a jumping off point of worship. Reading scripture is an act of worship, but it should make you want to sing. It should make you want to do something amazing for God, make you want to work for God.
whether it's to write a song, to sing a song, to create a piece of art, just, just to sit back and say, thank you, Lord, and let tears run down your face. Whatever it is, turn to God. That's what it is. Turn to God for the answers. You try to read scriptures to find as many answers as you can, but even scripture doesn't tell us all the answers. But knowing that we must have faith in God and follow him, whether he's being severe with us today or whether we see his kindness today, we follow God out of faith. And knowing that his gracious gifts, the gift of God of eternal salvation is irrevocable. And that we can have faith in that. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you and praise you for all that you do. You are the mighty God. Help us to love you and to serve you. Help us to put our faith in you. Whereas putting that faith in you for the first time or putting our faith into you again after all these decades of following you. Help us to be your servants in all that we do. Help us to sing a hymn of praise for your gracious mercies that you have shown us. But also help us to a, a hymn of praise when the severity of your judgment is seen in our lives. Because you were the mighty God. And we just pray all this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Pastor Nelson at Tower View Baptist Church. I'm associate pastor there. And uh, if you're watching this live, Drive-in church is still going to happen, rain or shine. This rain's supposed to go away. Actually, I'm looking out at the parking lot. It's it's drying up. Um, today's lesson was done in Jeff Jones' classroom. Um, so, Jeff, I'm sure you can recognize everything back there um, and your, your classmates. Um, so check out our website at towerviewkc.com, uh, and you can check out the, the, uh, the link for drive-in church. I'll have our bulletin there. I'll have the lyrics to the songs there. Um, but also, if, if you can't make it here, the uh, the songs will be posted on, on our, our page there um, that Craig has sung. You can, you can sing along with the video there. Darren's sermon will be posted there later this morning. And so just praise God and, and worship Him wherever you are, whether it's in our parking lot here at Tower View. Um, if you can't make it here, wherever you're watching or listening to this from. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can, our phone number, 816-368-1330. You can call, you can text that number. You can contact us through our, our Facebook page. And there's places that you can send messages on, on the uh, website also. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. God bless. And have a spirit-filled day. Thank you.